Tonight, this afternoon, we begin a, a new series, our journey through the book of Philemon. Of Paul's 13 letters that we have copies of today, this is the shortest one at 25 verses long. And if you are at all familiar with this story, it should come as no surprise that the major theme that runs throughout this is that of forgiveness. Is that of forgiveness. Paul writes this letter sometime between 60 and 61 AD from Rome while in prison. This is his first Roman imprisonment or, or really house arrest. He writes the, the letter to the Colossians at the same time. But this letter is written to a man named Philemon, a man that he personally knows. It's believed that he met Philemon years earlier when he had traveled to the ancient city of Ephesus doing ministry. Philemon was there, perhaps heard Paul teaching and preaching the gospel, and Philemon himself became a believer. But since that time, Philemon, he lives in Colossae. He is influent. He seems to be wealthy. He has a house large enough to host the church at Colossae. But the issue for Philemon and the nature of this letter being written by Paul to him deals with a runaway slave named Onesimus. Onesimus has defrauded Philemon. He has left. He has run away. And very well possible, it's possible that he may have even stolen from Philemon before he, he fled, according to verse 18. And Onesimus fled to Rome some thousand miles away. And as I said, that's where Paul happens to be under Roman house arrest. And it is in Rome that this runaway slave, Onesimus, gets saved. He meets Jesus in a saving, effectual way. And he also meets the Apostle Paul. And Paul begins to disciple and mentor him. But Paul's desire is for restoration between Philemon and Onesimus. And he knows that in order for that to happen, they, they need to be reunited. But the fact is, is Onesimus is a criminal in the eyes of the law. He is a runaway slave. And the Romans lived in constant fear of slave uprisings. One century earlier, such a slave uprising was led by Spartacus. And so they took no chances when it came to runaway slaves. They actually had professional slave catchers. And if they caught you, well, things could go very badly. They, they would often brand runaway slaves on their forehead that it be known that they were fugitives from the law. So Paul cannot risk sending Onesimus back given the, the circumstances surrounding runaway slaves. So he enlists the help of a friend named Tychicus or Tychicus to escort Onesimus back on the long journey to Colossae. And with him, he gives him two letters. The letter to Philemon and the letter to the Colossian believers that met in his church. So here's the issue. Before we can unpack this, there is an obvious issue that is staring us right in the face. And my job is to prepare you to unpack these truths, to make you ready for these real-life conversations, like the one I had six years ago when I was in seminary. I had gone up to visit my friend Roland in New Jersey over Thanksgiving break, and 
His unsaved friends and family nailed us on this issue. They said, you say the Bible is good. You say the Bible is true. So how can the Bible be good and true when it is silent on something that's so outrageous, so morally evil as slavery? And I was not prepared to give an answer to that. Got lit up. I don't like getting lit up. But I'll tell you what, you get up, lit up one time, and for me, that's, that's, that's enough. But that's, that's what they challenged us with. If the Bible is good and the Bible is true, how can it be when it is silent on the issue of slavery? You'll read this story. At no point does Paul tell Philemon to release Onesimus. Spoiler alert. So how do we handle those questions? Okay? How do we deal with these things? We need to be able to have some type of answer, some type of response. That's what Peter tells us. First Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. We need some type of explanation. And so, in order to answer that question that I was tackling six years ago, I think it's important that we answer the question is, how do we perceive the issue of slavery today? In order to answer that question, how is the Bible seemingly silent on this issue, we need to be able to answer, how do we perceive it today? How do we understand slavery today? And for many of us, we understand slavery through the lens of American history. That's how we understand slavery. So when I say slavery, you're already thinking of terms. Perhaps you're thinking of black and white. Maybe you're thinking north-south. Maybe you're thinking plantation or, or cotton. Maybe you're thinking Civil War, Lincoln, Emancipation Proclamation. Cruelty, injustice, abuse. See, when we say slavery, that's usually the prejudice. I don't think it's a bad prejudice. But that's the, the prejudice or the, the presupposition we bring to the conversation. To be fair. Now the question is, is this this how the writers of the Bible would have understood slavery? And my answer is, not at all. Understanding how they viewed slavery will help us to reconcile with these difficult questions. How did they view it? How did they understand it? At the time that this letter was written, one-third of the Roman world were slaves. One-third. Slavery was deeply intertwined within the fabric of everyday society. It was deeply integrated into the socioeconomic system of the day. For many of these people, they wouldn't have even thought about it twice. This issue of Slavery. And so one of the first things I, I always tell people is that. The second thing is when people say, well, the Bible doesn't condemn slavery, I would say it may not attack it directly, but it surely attacks it indirectly. In Matthew 19, 19, the scriptures say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm actually reading an, an article I just saw this week from the Gospel Coalition uh, website on this issue. I was like, this is perfect because I'm going through Philemon. I'll just read you a, a sentence or two. You see, 
It's impossible to do Matthew 19, 19. It's impossible to love your neighbor and simultaneously use your strength to refuse impersonal freedom for those that say Scripture's silent on, on this issue. And for those who bring up the Old Testament, Old Testament slavery can be explained in the context of Israel's unique, unique place in history. See, God gave Canaan to Israel, which involved the destruction of occupying forces and the enslavement of non-Israelites. But this was exceptional. An exceptional event within human history. Just as no nation has the right to kill the residents of a neighboring country, so no person has the right to enslave another. To argue the goodness of slavery on the basis of the Old Testament is to absolutely rip Scripture out of its context. So all together, I would say, Scripture does attack the issue of slavery. Not directly, but surely indirectly. Indirectly. But let's come back and think about the original audience, the writers of Scripture. Paul's writing at a time, as I said, when one-third of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. It was, it was just part of life. It was normative. The early Christians, they wouldn't have probably given it much thought, this issue of slavery. It wouldn't have even been on their moral radar. See, we think the obvious good would have been freedom for the slaves, would have been liberation. But we think that because of our 2017 American historical lens. Through the experiences within our nation, through the atrocities that have happened in our country. But I'm going to argue this obvious good that we recognize would not be so recognizable at the time that Paul is writing this in the first century to the early Christians. See, once again, we think of slavery as forced subjugation of a race of people. And in the first century, that was true. Oftentimes as a result of war, but also because individuals voluntarily sold themselves into slavery. We think of slavery in terms of cruel treatment of a certain race of people. Yet in the first century, this wasn't the case. In the first century, slavery was not racially based. Slaves came from all races, all different types of ethnic groups, They spread over multiple occupations through multiple social classes. So the slaves had little sense of solidarity. As one commentator notes, any such battle cry as slaves of the world unite, it would have fallen on deaf ears. Were slaves mistreated in the ancient world? Yes. One Roman historian recounts such an instance when a female slave owner decided to have one of her slaves beaten and then crucified simply for her own good pleasure. Slaves were viewed as property in the first century. Masters essentially had whatever they could treat them however they wanted to. But treatment in general varied. And I would say slaves were treated at least tolerably since they were an economic investment for their owners. Slaves in the first century may surprise you, but They could be doctors. Slaves could be doctors, musicians, teachers, artists, librarians, accountants. It was not uncommon at all for a Roman to train up their slave, their slave in the skill that they had. 
Slaves could also be set free. They could be set free, and often when the owner died, they would set their slaves free. They could earn their, their freedom in different situations and circumstances. But slaves found in the first century world that when they were set free, it often became very difficult for them to make a living. And freed slaves often had it much worse than their imprisoned slaves. See, the slaves were assured of food and clothing, shelter. Freed slaves often lived on the brink of starvation and poverty. So how do we understand this? The obvious good for us, we'd say, you should free the slaves. Slaves should be free. But this wouldn't have been the obvious good for the the people living in Bible times, even the Christian people living in Bible times. It, It simply wouldn't have been. In fact, you think about it. You think the implications of a a Christian slave owner releasing all of his slaves, we'd probably be like, we'd start cheering. That would be great. I think, ah, it's going to be great, right? They go to a temp agency, they can get a job. You know, there's welfare, we can get food stamps, we can get a place to stay. But this simply wasn't the case. If a Christian slave owner was to release all of his slaves, he very well may be condemning some, if not all of them, to a life of poverty and starvation in doing that. See, we have to understand our own prejudices. I don't think our prejudices are wrong. We view slavery as a moral evil and atrocity. But that's not the same view that people in the first century would have had. Not at all. People say, well, why didn't Jesus, when he was taking the message of the gospel, also try to to push this social reform to end slavery? To maybe start a cause or a movement? Good question. Many commentators argue that if Jesus had done that, any slave uprising would have been crushed by Rome. Like that. It's happened before. Would have happened again. But more to the point that any issue of social reform would have clouded the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel. Wrap your mind around that. Because I think oftentimes we misconstrue the message of the gospel. See, Christianity is not about some type of social reform. Christianity is not about trying to put an end to slavery. Christianity is not about changing the laws. Christianity, the gospel, is about the God of the universe changing rebel hearts. And from that flows true and lasting change. I sometimes wonder... If Christians put as much energy and effort into lobbying Washington, D.C. as they did to the spread of the gospel to all peoples and all nations, how different, how different things may be. And that's a struggle we have. We want to see bad things end. But true change doesn't happen when laws are changed. True change happens when rebel hearts are changed. That's when true change happens. And I know that my message may not resonate with some of you, right? Because many American Christians, they would say that you want change, it's going to happen in D.C. I, I have a pastor friend, he and I disagree very much on this issue, right? It's we got to, we got to, we got to make a... Yeah. 
Got to take back our country from, from those liberal Democrats. We got to do this. And I say, it was never our country to begin with. We're, we're just passing through. We're sojourners. Our citizenship is not of this world. Our citizenship is of the world to come. Now, some of you are probably, you don't like that. You're like, oh, he probably voted for Clinton. But hear me. You want true and lasting change? It comes through changed hearts. That's when true and lasting change comes and happens. Slavery is an important issue. But that's not what Philemon is about. See, Philemon is about forgiveness. Philemon is about restoration. Philemon is about reconciliation of two people. One, the owner of a slave, and the other a slave. That's a crazy thought at this time in the ancient world. But that's what Philemon's about. I would argue that it's the truths and principles from the Bible that ultimately laid the seeds to bringing about an end to slavery in general. And so we begin... Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. As I said, Paul is writing this sometime between 60 and 61 AD. He is under Roman house arrest. This is his first Roman imprisonment. He's under house arrest. He is in the custody of Caesar. He's in the custody of Rome. And he writes this, and he says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. One commentator notes, this is a subtle reminder for the Apostle Paul. A subtle reminder of the very sacrifices that he is and continues to make for the advancement of the gospel. No doubt, perhaps, in acknowledging his circumstances, as Philemon would get this letter and maybe whatever difficulties that he would have in honoring Paul's request to receive Onesimus back as a brother, to look on this request favorably. Whatever difficulty that may be, to think of Paul's own difficulty here as a prisoner in chains, under house arrest. Now, it's at this point in the story, which you may have already seen something that Strange. I don't know if you see it there. I see it. I've been staring at it a lot this week. Paul is in prison because of Caesar, because of Rome. So you would expect him to say, Paul, a prisoner of or for Caesar. Rome. He doesn't say that. It's interesting. Why doesn't he say that? I started asking myself, why doesn't he say that? Because Paul views the circumstances in the ultimate, total way, in the deepest, most truest sense, not to be as a result of Rome, not to be as a result of Caesar, but to be because Jesus wants him there. And that can be problematic for many of us who live our life based on Christian bumper stickers. We would say it like this. You experiencing, you experience good circumstances, attribute that to God. You experience bad circumstances. He's 
under Roman house arrest. We'll classify that. I don't think anyone would argue with me as a bad experience. Okay, that's due to the devil or to sin, and you gave in to sin and temptation. That's what we would say, right? He's in bad circumstance. That's either your own fault, temptation, or the devil. Good circumstance, that's God. That's how most people would talk. Paul apparently isn't most people. So what do we do with this? How do we make sense of this? It almost reminds me of that passage from Job chapter 2. It is a very provocative passage in Job chapter 2 verse 10. It won't come up on the slide, but I'll quote it to you. Because I love Bible verses that boggle my mind. See, in Job chapter 2, Job's going through some really, really bad stuff. And this is what he says. He says, should we not receive or should we not thank God for the good things and not also for the evil things? <laughs> i got to look that up in my Bible, okay? Nope, it's there, okay. That's a weird way to, for Job to talk. I think many of us would like to say, okay, um, Job, can, can you come over here with Paul? We need to give you a lesson on how to speak Christianese because that's not how we talk. So how we talk is good thing, God. Bad thing, the devil or sinful temptation. That's what we would ultimately attribute it to. Hurricane moves up the Atlantic seaboard. Kills hundreds of people. Does millions of dollars in damage. What's the ultimate reason? The prophet Amos would give you the answer. Amos 3.6, he would say, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has brought it? Amos, that's not how we talk. Amos, Moses, who's writing the story of Job, Paul, like we need to sit them down and, and let them know that there's all types of theological problems with how they're talking when they are ultimately attributing bad things to Jesus. That's a problem. For some of us, not for me, but for some of us, I understand it is a problem. Because the problem is, is we don't think of these things as being associated with God. And it almost comes as some indictment. Right? Job says, should we not thank God for the good things? And should we not also thank God for the evil things? And I know some of you would say, oh, but we all make mistakes. And even Bible characters say things they shouldn't say. And yet the very next sentence, it says... And in saying all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now I got another problem, right? Because <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Like, oh, Job, you shouldn't have said that. And in saying all of that, Job did not sin with his lips, Moses records. And I'm having my mind boggled right now. now these passages, if they're giving you a little bit of a headache right now, you need to pop, pop some ibuprofen, that's okay. It's taking me years to work through these passages. Because... Paul and Moses and Amos, they don't talk Christianese. And they see no problem in talking this way. They see no problem at all. Some of you guys are like, okay, I gotta, I'm like, I'm open the Safari app and I'm like fact checking everything that Joe says because this sounds so ridiculous right now. So what's the issue? How do we reconcile this? See, we throw around terms like, oh, God's in control. He either is or he isn't. Like, oh man, I do use that cliche a lot. 
Is he sovereign over all things or is he not sovereign over all things? Or is he sovereign all over all things just sometimes, but when it comes to bad things, he's not? Because if that's the case, he's not really sovereign over all things. If that's the case, then just go to Psalms 115.3 and just like cross that out of your Bible. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he wills to do. Whatever he wills to do. While you're at it, cross out Ephesians 1.11 that says, God governs all things, not just good things, all things according to the counsel of his will. But see... How he does this is a mystery. How he can, as Job says, should we not receive good from God? Should we not thank God for the good things and not also for the evil things? God does this. He sovereignly controls and governs all things without he himself sinning. And that is a mystery. Right? Like the Trinity. Like, is God one or three? Yes. (laughs) No, that's what the Bible says, so we believe it. (laughs) That's what the Bible says, so, so we believe it. He's sovereign over all things without he himself sinning in such situations. But, see, some of us were like, oh, poor little God. Because if Job is right, and if Amos is right, and if Paul is right, well, that makes God look like a bad guy. We need to come and defend God. Like, poor little God. Charles Spurgeon says, God, the Bible They're like a lion. Now, whoever heard of defending a lion, let it loose. It will defend itself just fine. God doesn't need you defending him. He's not a tiny little God that we've got to somehow defend him. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have a response, because that's what I was saying in the first 15-minute introduction. We should. How do we work through these things? So what's my point in saying all of this? What's my point in understanding why is Paul in prison? Because of Rome, because of Caesar. But ultimately, he attributes it in the similar Amos 3.6 way, in the similar Job 2.10 way, ultimately, this negative, not-so-good circumstances to God's sovereign plan. And this should give us a sense of relief. When things aren't going so well, When you find yourself in a less than ideal situation, to know that ultimately, ultimately, God's reigning and ruling sovereignly. You say, what about the devil? Yeah, he's the God of this world, but he's on a leash. He's on a leash. God is sovereign over all things, even not so good things. And he does so without he himself sinning. I imagine for Paul, that's got to be a sense of relief. He's there, he's in Roman custody, and he's got to be thinking, well, God wants me here, so he must have a pretty good reason. What a sense of relief to know that. To know that even if you're in a situation that you really would prefer not to be, to know that ultimately God has a plan in that situation for you. To know that it's not like God being like, oh, I really wish I could help you, Joe, but that's, that's a bad, that's bad circumstances. I only deal with good circumstances. So you're, you're on your own. I don't want that God. That God's way too small. I want the God that Paul has that ultimately he attributes. He's, this is the, it's God's plan that I'm in prison. I don't know why. Might not ever know why, but I gotta think he's got a good reason for that. That 
should lift the weight of a thousand burdens off your shoulders in knowing that God is sovereign over all things. That's how Paul sees it. Caesar, Rome, no. Ultimately, there's one reason and one reason alone. Christ has him in prison. And so he continues, to Timothy, our brother. He references Timothy because no doubt Philemon would have known Timothy. I love Timothy because Timothy's a young pastor like myself in the ancient church of Ephesus. He, and he would have, if commentators are accurate, Philemon would have met Timothy when he came to visit Ephesus. So he references Timothy, our brother, and then to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Philemon is not just a Christian who posts a, a cool Instagram Bible verse or something like once a week. Like Philemon is a fellow worker. He's not the type of guy who you only see once a week because he comes to warm a pew. Like Philemon is getting his boots dirty. He's living life with the people of God. He's a fellow worker, labor in the cause of the gospel. And then verse 2. And Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Now, this is interesting. Because you said, Joe, some of you guys are major fact checkers. You just said this was a personal letter, so it's becoming a whole lot less personal here in verse 2. If it's a personal letter, why mention Aphia, Archippus, and the church? Answer that. Okay, I will. Most believe that Aphia would have been Paul's or would have been Philemon's wife, and Archippus would have been his son. That's what most commentators believe. The text doesn't say this, but as commentators have come and they've tried to figure out and reason what would make the most sense, the issue of a runaway slave would have been no secret. It would have been a household matter. It would have been perfectly normal and understandable for him to mention Aphia and Archippus should they have been part of his immediate family, his wife, and his son. But that does not answer the question of the church. Why does he mention the church? And for most of us, this is a little confusing because of how we understand the church. Because of our own presupposition for the church. We read this and we think, if this is a personal letter, Paul's kind of sounding rather manipulative at this point. Like, I can understand, he, he mentions Aphia, he mentions Archippus, but now he's bringing up the church. He, that's, that's, that's his own business. He doesn't need to be bringing up the church. And for most of us, that's because of our understanding of the church. See, for many of us, we say, I'm going to roll with 168 hours during the week. Do my two hours on Sunday? Rule other 166 hours, that's my time. And if that is the case, then you'd be right. Paul is probably trying to be manipulative, bringing the church, referencing it like that. But the problem is, is I don't think that's what he's doing. Because I don't think that's how Philemon or Paul or Jesus or anyone else understands the church. For so many of us American Christians, we view church merely as an event that we go to. I'm going to get ready to preach in a second, guys. Hang on. We view church as we go, we do it. All right, now it's my time. Okay, it's, it's an event. No, it's not. It's not an event. In fact, I started telling people, I know I've hung out with Henry a lot. We'll ask people, like, do you go to church anywhere? Oh, yeah, I go, I go here. Like, oh, do you go or actually are you a part of? I just kind of go, okay. 
I started telling people, like, stop going to church. You, you should stop going to church. I don't want you going to church because the only people that go to church are non-Christians. Those are the only people that go to church because Christians, we are the church. So if you came here today and you're a Christian, you love Jesus, you didn't go to church today. All right, well, then what am I supposed to say? Okay. We have our large gatherings on Sundays. We gather together as the people of God, as the church on Sundays. But we also gather Tuesdays my house. We gather Thursdays at Matt Frazier's house. I gathered Friday with four or five guys. We went on a bike ride. We, we gather offline at different times. We gathered Friday night my house 25 strong and played Nerf Wars together. You, you don't see this church as an event anywhere in the Bible where Jesus is like, yo, Peter, James, and John, that was a sweet three hours at synagogue. I'll see you next week. <laughs> you don't see that, right? For Jesus, like church, for Jesus, discipleship was an all or nothing way of life. They ate together. They hung out together. They played together. He taught them. He corrected them. They were a community. So Sundays, what do we do? Sundays, we have our large gathering here. Tuesdays, we have a smaller gathering. Thursdays, we have an even smaller gathering. And then throughout the week, we have other unofficial gatherings. We gather together because we're a family. You see, when you understand church in those terms, this isn't manipulative at all. The church is his spiritual family. The church are his brothers and sisters in the faith. But if all you do is view church as an event that you go to, then yeah, be like, that's none of their business. And yet these are the people that gather in his home that he gathers with, I imagine, during the week he spends time with. These are his brothers and sisters in the faith. That's why he references them in this oh-so-personal letter. And then he says this in verse 3, grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This was Paul's standard, standard greeting. It appears in all 13 of his letters, grace, grace, love grace. Lee and I, we've been talking about grace a lot this, this last couple of weeks, just seeing that there's a lot more to grace than we actually even imagine. It's, it's a lot bigger than I think we even understand. See, we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. You can't do anything to reconcile this issue, this problem of sin. So we're saved by grace alone through what he did for us on that tree when he lived the life we couldn't live, when he died the death we should have died, when he paid the price we could not afford to pay. Grace. And it's from what he did for us, not what we did at any time for ourselves to merit some type of right or proper standing that results in true peace. You want true peace? If you want that, it's not going to come out of D.C. See, true, true peace comes from Jesus Christ and Him 
alone. You want, you want peace? You want peace. You're, you're here today, you're like, I need peace in my life because it's just been kind of crazy this last week, this last month. I need peace. How do I get it? Where does that begin? With God. That's where it begins. When you begin to see God as bigger and more magnificent and more beautiful than anything else. When you look at verse 2, and you see Paul, even in his not-so-good circumstances, attributing his situation in Rome, by the hands of Caesar, ultimately to God. What a sense of peace. I imagine that must be, to know that even in difficult circumstances, God must have a really good reason for this. That's where true peace comes from. When we step back and we say, all right, God, circumstances aren't so great, but I got to think that for whatever reason, you've got a plan. You know better than I do. So I'm going to just cowboy it up here in Rome and do my thing to redeem the time that I have in the circumstances that you've put me in for some type of reason. See, true peace happens when we step back and we behold the greatness of our God. What we need is a a bigger view of God, a bigger picture of God. For some of us, your picture and your view of God is just too small. Oh, that we might all step back and see the greatness, the grandeur, and the glory. As the band comes, I'd like to pray. Lord, I want us to behold our God, not some small little tiny God who who can't help us when difficulties happen, but a God who, who has everything planned out, even circumstances when we find ourselves in Rome, in, in custody by Caesar, in chains, that even that is part of his plan, though we don't understand it always in the moment, that you would give us peace. That you would give us peace. That we would be able to say, okay, God, you got a plan. Don't know why. Don't know how this is going to play out, but that's okay. You took care of Paul. You took care of Job. You you took care of Amos. Sometimes not in the ways we would have wanted you to take care of or provide for us. But they believed it. And I pray that you would give us faith to step back and trust you. That we might behold after tonight a, a bigger picture of who you are. Amen.